You are listening to episode 37 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Don't preen yourself on any distinction that is not your own. If the preening horse would say, I am beautiful, it would be acceptable. But when you are preening and say, I have a beautiful horse, admit that you are preening yourself on a good quality that belongs to the horse. What then is your own? The management of impressions. So whenever you are in harmony with nature in the way you perform this function, that's the time to preen yourself. For then, you will have a good thing that is your own to preen yourself on. Enchiridion 6. If Epictetus were teaching today, he probably would not choose a horse as the object of this lesson. Instead, he might say, Don't preen yourself on your expensive sports car, sparkling diamond bracelet, large, finely appointed house, etc., because the good qualities of those possessions do not belong to you. The object of this lesson doesn't matter. The lesson remains the same. The first thing we need to do with this lesson is to understand the meaning of the word preen in this passage. Most translations use the English word elated in Enchiridion 6. However, A.A. Long chose the word preen for his translation, and I think his choice brings out the whole meaning of this passage. When I referenced my resources, I discovered the Greek verb used in this passage means to lift up and set on. There are two aspects of this verb, to lift up and to set on. Therefore, Epictetus is doing more than warning us not to feel a sense of elation or pride when we look at our expensive sports car, sparkling diamond bracelet, large, finely appointed house, etc. We could feel that sense of elation or pride while we're alone, lying in bed or daydreaming while sitting in a park. The word elated seems to overlook the public aspect of this passage, and that may be why A.A. Long chose the word preen instead of elated. The Online Learner's Dictionary offers the following definition of preen when used as a transitive verb, which is the case in this passage. To preen yourself is to feel very pleased with yourself about something and to show others how pleased you are. That definition helps us understand in Chiridion 6. Epictetus is warning us not to show off our possessions, as if their good qualities somehow transfer to us and lift us up in the eyes of others. The word preen is often used to describe a person grooming or admiring him or herself in the mirror, but that's not the whole meaning here. Likewise, the word preen can bring about an association with the myth of Narcissus. Many of you are likely familiar with that Greek myth, from which we get the psychological construct of the narcissist. Narcissus was a beautiful young man who wandered upon a still pool of water while he was out hunting. When he saw his own reflection in the pool of water, he fell in love with it and remained there staring at it for the remainder of his life. While Narcissus was quite happy to remain at the pool, staring and loving his own reflection, that is not the point of Epictetus' lesson. However, with some modification and modernization of that myth, we can get to the point that Epictetus is trying to make here. Imagine a modern version of Narcissus who walks into the bathroom one day and sees the reflection in the mirror. They feel elated by their own beauty. Wow, they think, I look hot. 
So they pull out their smartphone. They take a picture of themselves in the mirror. After admiring the picture for a few seconds, they post it on Facebook, Instagram, and any other social media platforms. Why? Because they want others to see how attractive they are. They are trying to lift themselves up by setting their attractiveness on display for others to see. They want others to attribute their beauty to them so that they will be lifted up in the eyes of others. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, but that is their attractiveness. That is a quality that belongs to them. Well, not exactly. Here's Epictetus on the topic. But what does Zeus have to say about this? If it had been possible, Epictetus, I would have ensured that your poor body and petty possessions were free and immune from hindrance. But as things are, you mustn't forget that this body isn't truly your own, but is nothing more than cleverly molded clay. Discourses 1, 1, 10 to 11. According to Stoicism, our body is not up to us. We do not create our own bodies. Yes, we take care of our bodies and we can make it look better in some ways. Nevertheless, we are not in complete control of what happens to our bodies. We cannot prevent them from getting sick, broken, or old. In fact, in Enchiridion 1, our body is the very first thing on the list of things that are not up to us. Now, if you prefer a more analogous modern equivalent, I will offer the person who takes a photo of his flashy sports car or her shiny diamond bracelet and posts it on social media for others to admire and envy. Again, they want others to think highly of them because of the possessions they own. Now, my purpose here is not to analyze why people behave this way. I'm only interested in the reason why Epictetus warns us from doing so. And that brings us to the next concept in this passage that we need to examine, the qualities that do not belong to us. Yes, you own a flashy red sports car, but Epictetus would tell you the qualities of that car do not belong to you. They belong to the sports car. That's a beautiful diamond bracelet you own, Epictetus might say. But that beauty does not belong to you. It belongs to the bracelet. I hope you're starting to get the point. The qualities of our possessions, even the qualities of our own bodies, are not ours. They are not up to us. Therefore, we are mistaken when we attempt to lift ourselves up in the eyes of others by wrongly thinking we can transfer those good qualities of our possessions to our soul or our self. Sadly, there is a reasonable motive for the behavior Epictetus warns us about in Enchiridion 6. People do judge us based upon our looks and possessions. Our character is not typically the first quality society uses to evaluate us. In fact, a person's character may be several places down the list of the qualities that people are looking for in a friend, life partner, employee, etc. If you doubt this, here's an experiment. Tell a young man you want to introduce him to a young woman you know. Then say, she's really sweet and a good person. What image just popped in his head? You know what he's imagining, and it's not a gorgeous female who looks great in yoga pants. Now do the same for a young woman. Hey, I think you should meet my friend. I think you'll like him. He's a really nice guy and a good person. What image just popped in her head? She's probably not picturing a hot guy with a muscular physique and a flashy sports car. Even though we described both people with positive character traits, we may not get an immediate positive response from the people that we're talking to. Why? because a good character may not make the top three traits on their list. Now, I don't think that's because people consistently undervalue character. I think it has more to do with the images our society offers as good. Movies, television, and commercials sell us images of the good, and we unconsciously buy into them. Additionally, we cannot see a person's character immediately. 
so we look for other qualities to help us quickly determine another person's value. In the West in particular, we were raised to identify the value of other people by their appearance, job, clothing, the car they drive, the house they own, etc. Pick up any success book and you will likely come across some version of the, quote, fake it till you make it strategy for success. What is that? It's a tactic whereby you wear nice clothes, an expensive watch, and drive an expensive car to leave others with the impression you are already successful, even though you haven't arrived yet. You fake it till you make it. Success books typically offer this tactic to salespeople, where their image is thought to influence potential buyers. Many real estate agents and outside sales professionals employ this tactic. And it works. If you doubt that, think about this. Let's say you're trying to sell your house and you're interviewing real estate agents. Which one are you more likely to pick? The one who drives up in a Mercedes wearing nicely fitted clothes or the one driving the Honda Prius that looks rather disheveled in their appearance? We tend to make assumptions about people based on their appearance, which may not be justified at all. As Stoics, we must try to look beyond the facade and attempt to see a person's character because we cannot judge character by appearance. Consider Socrates. He was a pretty homely guy based upon historical accounts, and he didn't dress for success. If a modern equivalent of Socrates approached you today, would you ignore him based upon his appearance and attire? I suspect that most of us would. Now, before we move on, I want to make one point clear. The Stoics were not opposed to having possessions. Yes, they prescribed ascetic practices for training purposes, but they were not renunciants. In reference to another passage in Discourses where Epictetus warns about placing value on possessions, the Stoic scholar A.A. A. Long wrote the following. Does it follow then that Stoic philosophy taught the utter indifference to owning and protecting property? It does not follow, and that for two reasons. First, the reason is that although wealth as an external commodity has no moral value in Stoicism, it has instrumental value for living in agreement with nature and should be preferred to poverty. The Stoic then is not a cynic. Given the choice and given consistency with moral principles, Stoics prefer wealth and health to poverty and sickness, and they ground that choice in a premise about nature, which here refers to the teleology of human nature and its identification with rationality. End quote. Nevertheless, the Stoics made it clear that possessions can impede our progress if we are not careful. When we practice disciplining our desires and aversions, we typically think about the things we desire but don't currently have or something that we fear and want to avoid. It's easy to overlook our desires to maintain a hold on things we already possess. The desire to keep a possession, or the fear of losing a possession, is just as damaging to our psyche as desiring something we do not currently possess and fearing circumstances we don't currently face. It's pathos in both cases. Why? Because we're counting on externals for our well-being when the only thing that can produce well-being is an excellent character, virtue. We might wreck our car, lose our jewelry, or our home may burn to the ground. What will happen to our well-being if it's dependent upon those externals? Well, Epictetus told us what would happen in chapter 1 of the Enchiridion. We will be frustrated, pained, and troubled, and we will find fault with gods and men. The Stoics were not opposed to possessions. However, they warned us to ensure our possessions don't own us. Interestingly, at the end of Enchiridion 6, Epictetus tells us there is one thing that we are entitled to preen ourselves on, the management of impressions. In Enchiridion 6, Epictetus asks, what then is your own? 
then answers the management of impressions. I provided a detailed explanation of impressions in Episode 9 of Stoicism on Fire, where I discussed the discipline of ascent. Briefly, impressions are presented to our senses by the outside world. As I noted in Episode 9, sense impressions are derived from an existent object or fact. They come from what is in the world. The technical term for impressions is fantasia, and impressions are not a problem in themselves. They are simply sense perceptions. Sight, sound, smell, taste. The problem begins when we instantly attach value judgments to those impressions without proper consideration or adequate information. Pierre Haydo offers this insightful passage on the management of impressions in his inspiring book, The Inner Citadel. The soul or guiding principle thus has three fundamental activities. In the first place, as it receives the images which come from bodily sensations, it develops an inner discourse, and this is what constitutes judgment. The soul tells itself what a given object or event is. In particular, it tells itself what the object is for the soul, that is, what it is in the soul's view. Here we have a central node of the whole of Stoicism, that of inner discourse or judgments expressed on the subject of representations. As Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius never tire of saying, everything is a matter of judgment. It is not things themselves that trouble us, but our representations of those things, the ideas we form of them, and the inner discourse which we formulate about them. Desire and impulses to action are necessary results of this inner discourse. If we desire something, it is because we have told ourselves that the thing in question is good. Likewise, if we want to do something, it is because we have told ourselves it was a good thing." End quote. In episode 9, I also provided a tactic for managing impressions, and I will repeat that here. When an impression presses itself upon our senses, we should 1. Stop it. 2. Strip it bare. 3. See it from a cosmic viewpoint. If you need a refresher on the topic, again, listen to episode 9. But briefly, stop it entails putting the brakes on the impression so it does not carry you away with irrational thoughts into a state of fear, anxiety, anger, etc., then strip the impression bare of the almost immediate value judgment that you probably already attached to it. Remember, the event that created the impression is neither good nor bad. It is simply what is. And the impression is nothing more than a representation of what is. The judgment that it is good or bad is ours. And that judgment is what causes our psychological disturbances. Finally, view the event and the resulting impression from a cosmic perspective. If you knew all of the circumstances surrounding this event, you could see it from a different perspective. Give the cosmos the benefit of the doubt and trust that all events serve some purpose, even though they may appear disturbing or even traumatic at that moment. As practicing Stoics, we must keep the cosmic viewpoint in mind. As John Sellers, a University of Oxford scholar, points out in his classic book titled Stoicism, one aspect of living according to nature is cultivating a new perspective on the world that tries to see things from the point of view of nature as a whole, rather than merely from one's own limited perspective. This is what Marcus Aurelius tries to accomplish in a number of the sections of the Meditations. And on the same topic, the scholar A.A. A. Long wrote, The Stoics seem to be committed to the claim that from the cosmic perspective, everything which happens accords with nature and is therefore right. End quote. Now this brings us to the final concept that Epictetus covers in Enchiridion 6, in harmony with nature. 
If you read the Stoic texts or any credible scholarship on Stoicism, you will quickly be exposed to the concept of living in accordance or agreement with nature. Here is one of the many passages from Epictetus' discourses on the topic. Come now, show me what progress you're making in this regard. Suppose I were talking to an athlete and said, show me your shoulders, and he were to reply, look at my jumping weights. That's quite enough of you and your weights. What I want to see is what you've achieved by the use of those jumping weights. Take the treatise on motivation and see how thoroughly I read it. That's not what I'm seeking to know, slave, but how you're exercising your motives to act and not act, and how you're managing your desires and aversions, and how you're approaching all of this, and how you're applying yourself to it and preparing for it, and whether in harmony with nature or out of harmony with it. This course is 1 for 13 to 14. As A.A. Long notes, the coherence of Stoicism is based upon the belief that natural events are so causally related to one another that on them a set of propositions can be supported which will enable a man to plan a life wholly at one with nature or God. End quote. Living in agreement with nature entails being in accord with our rational human nature and the rationality of the cosmic nature. This agreement is stated beautifully in one of my favorite passages for meditations, which I often repeat on this podcast. Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. Meditations 4.23 Now I suspect that each of us could come up with a long list of possessions, accomplishments, associations, positions, titles, etc. that we have preened ourselves on in the past. Again, none of these are inherently good or bad. They are indifference. Stoic practice does not require us to live as renunciants who abandon all possessions and forego all accomplishments for an entirely ascetic, monastic life. Nevertheless, Stoic practice does require us to stop placing value on these things as goods. They are not. Instead, they are preferred indifference at best. As such, they have no bearing on our character or our well-being. If you want to make progress on the Stoic path, stop relying on the good qualities of things or titles you possess to lift yourself up in the eyes of others. Those qualities do not belong to you. Instead, focus your attention on the only quality that does belong to you, an excellent character that can only be developed if you properly manage the impressions presented to your rational faculty. If you manage your impressions well, you will be in agreement with nature. Epictetus said that is something to preen yourself on. However, if you live that way, you won't need to preen yourself and lift yourself up in the eyes of others. That will happen naturally. Others will notice there is something different about the way you act and react to life's events. I leave you with this thought from the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. The time you have left is short. Live it as if you were on a mountain. Here or there makes no difference. If wherever you live, you take the world as your city. Let men see, let them observe a true man living in accordance with nature. No more roundabout discussion about what makes a good man be one. Meditations 10, 15-16 Until next time, stop preening yourself on the qualities of your possessions. Those good qualities don't belong to you. If you want something to preen yourself on, manage your impressions and live in agreement with nature. Then, your practice of Stoicism will be on fire. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. 
If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire. Thank you.